This is the On All Cylinders Podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Your hosts for today are Summit Racing's Al Noe and Brian Nutter with special guest Mike Copeland of Arrington Performance. Here we go. Welcome to the On All Cylinders Podcast. I'm Al, this is my friend and co-worker Brian, and today we are joined by an extremely special guest, Mike Copeland, CEO of Arrington and Diversified Creations will join us today. So Mike has a passion for racing. He won the Mini Bike National Championship while still in high school. How cool is that? Mike went through Ford's technician training program and worked in various dealerships for several years. After many years at independent shops that specialized in Corvettes, General Motors recruited Mike to work for Cadillac. He took over education and training for the brand before moving to Flint, Michigan in 1994 to run the Buick Olds Cadillac Experimental Build Area, where he was responsible for final testing and validation. In 1998, Mike went to Warren, Michigan, where he spent seven years working on advanced vehicle integration as head of GM's Advanced Vehicle Architecture Program. His final position before retiring from GM was as lead engineer for the performance division. After GM, Mike then became the VP of Operations at Lingenfelder Performance Engineering, where he led the development of a number of amazing projects. In 2017, Mike left Lingenfelder and purchased Arrington Engines and currently builds some of the most awesome late model Hemis around. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. It's awesome to see you. How are you doing? Doing great, guys. So starting with the Mini Bike National Championship, how how did you get into that? Was your mini bike, a, were you running in a stock class or was it highly Copelandized where it was all kinds of crazy stuff and and uh, fast as anything? How'd you get into that? Well, I convinced my dad to take me to a mini bike race, a local one when I was 11 years old. So I had a, a just a Rutman mini bike, a, a four horse on it. And I had the governor tied, of course, and, <laughs> and a straight pipe. But uh, my first ever race, I got third place. And that just, that hooked me, right? Uh, that was the last race of the year. I'd seen, read about it in the newspaper. And so we went out there. The next year we went back and then it took off, right? I mean, it. I was very competitive. I know you're probably shocked to hear that. But, nah. <laughs> um, you know, I started racing when there was just like one class, two classes, and then and then it grew and grew. Before, I mean, I went through the local mini bike shop sponsorship. Then I got sponsored by Rupp. And uh, they would supply bikes for me. Then uh, we transitioned to Speedway because Rupp was kind of pulling out of racing. And their engineers started their own company, which was Speedway Mini Bikes. And then I ended up racing for a a company called Minimate. And they were out of Lansing, Michigan. It was about 50 miles from home. But uh, in the end, I rode seven classes. So I rode uh, from three and a half, four horse and five horse stock, three and a half, four horse and five horse modified. And then we had an open class, and I raced that one as well. So tell me about what an open class mini bike looks like or sounds like. <laughs> well, my my wildest uh, open class, and, and you know, we kept transitioning, and as the mini bike racing grew, and you know, it became a, a countrywide event. I mean, I traveled the country racing. My open class bike had uh, twin Detroit Deco engines on Detroit Engineering Company. They had uh, we made half inch stroker crankshafts for them machined billet connecting rods and billet pistons. We had camshafts custom welded and then reground. We would do all the port and polish work and everything in them. And they ran on nitromethane and alcohol. So we would, you know, we started with, you know, 10%. First we switched to alcohol and then we started 10% nitro. And as anybody that's ever played with that stuff knows, it's addicting. So by the end, we were on 90% nitromethane, 10% alcohol. 
we had dual exhaust pipes, dual uh, two-inch exhaust pipes that came off the side. It was like a funny car. I mean, you had two foot of blue flame coming out of both pipes. I'd like to wild. see some footage. I don't know if you ever recorded footage of that, but man, I'd love to yeah, see Yeah, any that. video, Mike, we'll share it through <laughs> Facebook, and that'll probably be one of the biggest hit things we've ever done. Seriously. Yeah, wow. we actually uh, just, my mom recently passed away. My sister was cleaning out her stuff. We found a ton of old photos and eight millimeter movies that we had created back in the day. Wow. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, I have a bunch of that. I haven't had time to convert it yet, but I'll, I'll do that and I'll get you some. But, you know, I, I traveled the country race and I competed with like Jeff Ward was a mini bike racer. He right. was younger than me, but, but he competed in the open class and some of the others. And, you know, my sister raced. They only had like one, one class, but, uh, she raced. That's what we did. I mean, every weekend we raced and every week I spent the entire week performing maintenance and updating bikes. And and to give you an example of how serious we were, it was normal for us to have 45 mini bikes at a time. Wow. We had race bikes. We had championship bikes. We had engines the same way. We were always pushing the boundary on engines somehow, trying to make them faster, changing different parts in them. I mean, they made enough power that we would actually twist the frames on the mini bikes and spit chains off. So we had to put cross structure in the frames to hold them. We were serious, as serious as you can get. So is that what started it all for you? Was that the moment you said, you know, I'm going to play around with engines my whole life and I'm going to work on something mechanical, whether it's motorcycles, cars? Yeah, I think it started even before that, right? I mean, I, I have memories of, you know, being like four years old with my hand up in the door of a 54 Ford holding a nut so my dad could change a window regulator. Dad worked on cars at home and and then he worked in dealers and, you know, he was a technician and then a shop foreman, then service manager, then he ran dealers. And so I, you know, I, I grew up in that environment, right? In 1964, my dad had a Galaxy 500 convertible, 427, 425 dual quad, four-speed car. And I remember the family... We used to go out in the country and race. They would street race. And my mom, my sister, and me standing on the shoulder of the road, and, and we would stand out there and watch the races. That's how I grew up. So when you were young, when was the deciding moment when you decided to make a living doing this? Do you remember what age you were at and kind of what you were thinking and what, what you wanted to do? Or was it just to pay for like going racing on the weekends and stuff? No, no. I, I knew, I mean, from, from my youngest memories that I was going to be a mechanic. That's what my dad did. And uh, my dad's friends did that. They, you know, he was always working in the garage at home, but he worked in a dealership during the day. And then he would work at home in the garage on nights and weekends. And uh, he supported his racing habit somewhat that way. And, and uh, but I always knew I was going to be a mechanic. When I was, I, I graduated high school at 17. My dad ran a Ford dealer. Ford had what they called a job entry training program for mechanics. Right. And uh, my dad got me into that program. So I, I went and it was a, 24 week course and you went to class for a week and then you worked a week. So if you learned like, you know, you learned carburetors, right? The goal was that you would work on carburetors the following week. When you learned how to build axles, the following week you'd build axles. That was the path. And, you know, I did that, started that when I was 17. I'm a little bit focused, you know, so I took that course. I graduated that at 24 weeks, number one in the class out of about 50 people. And, you know, the rest is kind of history, right? 
I went into management because that's what my dad did. I was 21 years old and I ran, I, I was a shop foreman in a 50 bay dealership. And, what was and, that so like? I, I mean, being that age and, and, you know, I'm sure you had a bunch of frankly grumpy old mechanics and everything like that talking about this whippersnapper. I mean, that that's, that's a talent to be able to manage that kind of a crew. It was a huge challenge. You know, it, 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 my wife always says, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. You know, I mean, I was in there and, and, and you just have to do it, right? My dad always told me that, you know, you've arrived when you find your name on the bathroom wall. <laughs> and it, it was about two weeks. <laughs> you and I worked on a bunch of stuff over the years. And I remember getting a call from this guy at GM who said, I need some help. I need a set of headers and I need them now. Mike, do you recall, I'm trying to remember the order, was that the GTO project or which one was that? That was, that was, that was actually when I met you and uh, we were building uh, what we called the Woodward GTO. It was a wide body 2004 GTO. And, uh, you know, the LSs were coming around and, you know, they were out already for a number of years, but we were really learning to turn the power up. So we had built a, a 600 horse LS motor that was going in that car. So I had the project, did all the pre-work, put all that stuff together. They ended up taking it outside to get it assembled. And uh, they put the stock manifolds back on this 600 horse LS and uh, it lost a hundred horsepower. I said, there's gotta be a better way. I went out and searched on the internet. I found Stainless Works, called and got you on the phone and said, this is who I am and I need a set of headers and I need them now. You said, I can do that. And uh, so you actually changed the line and put the GTO tooling in so you could build me a set of headers. And I had them within about two days, put them in the car, it picked up a hundred horsepower. And, uh, you know, that was an orange wide body car that just got massive attention when we debuted it. We were doing calibration. It was the first time we'd ever done dual mass airflow sensors. So we were doing oh, yeah. calibration in it and all that. And of course, it had a big cam and lots of other things. Right. And, uh, we were testing it. It wouldn't go over 4,000 RPM. And uh, we were changing things. We bricked the ECM right in calibration. So we, I had to come up with another ECM at like nine o'clock on a, I think it was a Monday night because we had a Tuesday press debut on Woodward. 1030 at night, pulled it out into our private test track, turned it loose. I had to, we were working with K-Tech at that point, And I had one of their guys, a guy named Darren, sitting in the right seat with a laptop. And I pulled it out in the street put my foot on the floor and turned the clutch loose. I went 7,003 gears, turned around and went back. And, and he looked at me and he says, you tickled the rev limiter on the 2-3 shift. <laughs> well, then raise it. <laughs> anyway, we uh, had to put a fascia on it and change the exhaust and do a few other things. But we made our 9 a.m. press debut the next morning. I remember you sending me a picture of Project X, the 57 Chevy redo that you did. And the billet side trim, where if anybody's familiar with the 57 Bel Air, the side trim on one of those is like, I don't know, the size of a dining room table. It is one of the biggest, most ornate pieces of trim on the car. And you made that out of billet. Yeah, we designed that. I wanted to change the contour a little bit and I wanted it to be one piece because the factory is stainless and, it, and it's multiple piece. So we started with uh, two seven foot long sheets of 6061 and we CNC'd side moldings out of it hand formed the inserts in it. If you're familiar with the 57, it's got the lines in it, you know, that are kind of like machined into it. But we hand formed the sides and there's a, a body contour in there that you wouldn't really realize unless you actually had to do it. But it's pretty ornate and how the quarter panel stamp. But we handmade those and then we laser cut X's into it. The, so that the lines were actually X's. 
And then, so we did that on the quarter panels and then I reversed that. It actually went down the whole side of the car and I reversed that and created it in the door panels on the inside. So if you looked on the inside of the car, it had the same feature and the same materials that formed that as it went through the front door and the quarter trim panels. Then the other one I remember, because I am am a Camaro guy, the Reggie Jackson Camaro Project. Wasn't that the first LSX engine build that GM did, if I remember right? Or did that go to Warren Johnson? I'm trying to remember. No, that was the first one that ever got built. So that was, I built that car as well. And, uh, you know, that had a lot of trick features in it. But yeah, it was LSX number one. And here's the trick, something that people don't know about that is, you know, when you design a block, you spec the material based on the intended use and, and all those things. In that case, you know, they wanted the block to be super strong because we had a 2000 horsepower target. So they cast the block and they used a material that we typically used in Duramax blocks for the diesels. And they had changed the material a little bit, but it used that. It took six sets of cutters to bore the cylinders. <laughs> the block was so hard, we destroyed six sets of cutters, machine in the bores. Out of all that stuff you've done, are there any projects that come to mind that were not the end result was a disaster, but it was like you're ripping your hair out to get the thing done and you're like, oh my gosh, this thing's going to kill me. And then finally you get it down the road and you're like, thank goodness that thing's behind me. Oh yeah. There were a number of them, right? You know, I tend to judge stuff by what it is at the end. Was it a success, right? Did it deliver on what the requirements were? And all of those, you know, I, I I mean, I've had a couple misses, but frankly, it's very rare. And it, and a miss to me doesn't mean it was a miss for its goal. It just means it didn't meet necessarily my expectations. We right. built a, an SSR one time. They wanted to showcase ethanol. So they had me build an SSR and, and they wanted it to be patina look. So we had to take a new SSR and disassemble it and then create a phony patina look. And we put a, a supercharged... 427 inch LS in it, you know, just all of the, that kind of stuff that supports it. Right. And it ran on ethanol. That one was, in my opinion, a miss. It was an add on at the last minute. We, we took it on power tour once and then we ended up scrapping it. it. It just didn't target and didn't bullseye what it was really intended to be. It's interesting you say that. I mean, because you have to be ahead of the trends. These cars take a long time to produce. So what is it like, you know, working in that planning stage? Well, so people see have, and have seen a lot of the stuff I built, the cool stuff. They never see what my real day-to-day job was. It was a first ever kind of world, right? That's where I work. So if there was a new powertrain or there was a new idea, we would build a vehicle to prove it. If there was a new idea for noise and vibration, we would build a car that supported that. If you were building a handling package, we might take a car and cut all the suspension out of it and create an all-new suspension system and put it under the car. And then so you could test it and do all that work. We would weight them, you know, and do different things. I mean, it's so much more complicated to build production-based cars than people realize, normal people, right? I'll give you an example. When we did a version of the Escalade and the, and the Yukon, there was a point that you couldn't get an overhead monitors in the rear of the truck if you got a sunroof. Because the mass, just that amount of mass changed the handling enough that it didn't meet what we called vehicle technical specs. So all of that has to be tested and developed. So we would build cars with some of the craziest stuff you've ever seen to go do that. Right. It could be sitting next to you at a light. You wouldn't even know what it was, but that's what it was, right? There are so many of those things. 
recently I saw a story got out about a V10 LS, right? Right. Somebody ended up with one, got out of a salvage yard. And, you know, we were all sworn to secrecy back in those days. And I'm out of there for a number of years, so they can't control me anymore. Um, <laughs> I built all of those. Right. <laughs> I, we, I built the trucks they went in. That, that was, you know, they were on a path that that was going to be the replacement for the 8-1. You know, there are just thousands of things. We would, we would be in meetings and, and, you know, exhaust noises. In my opinion, the sound of a V8 is God's gift to the car guy. That perfect sound, right? That's actually considered a fourth order note is what comes out of the exhaust. Less cylinders. If you do a six cylinder, it's a third order note. You do a V10, it's a fifth order note. And you have to tailor each one of them differently. And each one of them creates vibration. So you have to control that vibration. A V8 is kind of a, a really good place where all of that, where you can time the crank rotation and the, and the cylinder fires and all of those things. V12 is better. V16 is better again. But that's a piece of that, right? The third order like a V6 makes or the fifth order that a V10 makes, the V10 is about as bad as you can get. I mean, when we were planning those, I would sit in meetings for two and a half hours and we would listen to order notes at pass by sound and all of these different things. And they have to design an engineer for all of that. If people knew, I, I still sometimes question how we ever finished a car. How did we ever get to production? Because there's just millions of steps. That's awesome. And to work with a team, you know, that, you know, you guys produce hits after hit after hit. Pretty amazing. Yeah. I was very lucky because through my entire GM career, I got to work with some of the best engineers and some of the smartest people you would ever meet. I got to learn from people that operated on levels that others couldn't even comprehend. I mean, I remember going to, we had a chassis guy and working in advanced integration, we had kind of the best of the best, right? And we had a chassis guy that probably personally touched 70% of the suspension systems that GM offered through the years. I mean, he was just that kind of guy, right? I was not a slouch at it, but, you know, I wasn't even in the same book he was in. And I went to him one time and said, look, I'm doing this and I have this issue. And, and he started drawing on a whiteboard and I was this, this just, you know, numb faced, totally tuned out guy within about two minutes because he wow. had left me so far behind with his knowledge. I couldn't even see where he was going, let alone follow his path. And I got to learn from those guys. I mean, and everything you learn, everything you do just makes you better. Right. If we want to talk about some of our favorite cars or the CTSVs and, and the ZL1 program, to see the competition with the Mustang and you know, the constant one-upmanship, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I, I, those are going to go down in history as just some of the best of our era. Yeah. One thing I'll add to what Al said when he was talking about that, I did the first ever cars. So when you're building a car, they create what they call a set of vehicle technical specs and they define what it needs to be. How fast is it? How does it handle? How does it stop? What's the noise level? What I mean, there's there's just, it's a really, really extensive list. So we go in and, and try to target those specific areas and build a car that hits that point. So in the case of the CTSV, initially it was not a V8. And uh, it, it was kind of a last minute change. Lutz was involved in that point in time. And he was a take no prisoners kind of guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. get it done, right, Mike? He had a phrase and he actually had like stickers made on the sticker, it was a round sticker, and it said, says who? And we would be in meetings, and people would be compromising, and they would be, you know, not wanting to take the risk, and not all of these other things. And, well, we can't do that. We can't do this. We can't do that. 
And I saw him take those stickers over and stick them on executive shirts and say, <laughs> tell me, says who we can't do that. Who says we can't do that? And I've heard awesome. that story about the LS7 as well when, when that thing was coming out. And the story goes, you know, we, we can't do something that's 427 cubic inches and have the thing live. And then, you know, one of the fellows in the room said, well, if I don't misstate it, I think we just won the 24 hours of Daytona or something like that with the 427 and the C5R program. So why can't we do it? Out of all the projects, we talked about the ones that didn't meet your expectations. What about your favorites? You've got to have some that come to mind. I mean, you've had personally like your Rampage project was incredible, which is a, a Dodge Rampage with a, a Hemi in the back of it and a transaxle. I mean, you've done some absolutely crazy stuff over the years and there's gotta be some that are be best thing Mike Copeland ever did or the ones that are near and dear to your heart. Yeah, well, the Rampage is obviously one of those, right? That whole thing came out of my head. There was no rendering. I mean, we did a rendering so that we could do a poster for SEMA, but the rendering came from my description to the artist that drew it. So that that was there. I think from my GM world, I mean, we built some cool cars and, and, and I tried to push the boundaries on every one of them. The Hot Rod Solstice was a huge success in, to me. I mean, we started with a production Solstice, four-cylinder manual transmission, weighed 2,870 pounds. We tore that thing apart. A lot of people don't realize if they didn't read the stories or every body panel on that car was carbon fiber, except the quarters. I took 16 pounds out of the wiring harness, eliminating right. things that we didn't need. We put a, an LS7 base. It made 575, the LS7 that we built for it. We made tri-y headers for it. That car really turned up. I mean, it, it took cars to another level, right? We went 1090 with that car on an unprepped asphalt surface in 34 degree weather with snow flurries coming down. And it went 1090. That car was very special. It's kind of sad that it, it never really, that it's not still with us here today because I, I look at it in a lot of ways as like a scaled down bet, right? Uh, I guess the suspension was designed by the same guy that did the C5 as well. It was just the four-cylinder version of it. So Should have had a V8 in it, you know. And Mike, honestly, that project that you did, I think that paved the way for, as an example, Mallet cars, Chuck and Lance Mallet. I don't know how many V8 solstices they built. They built a number of those, which are just incredible cars. I mean, the, the car that you built, I think, is the car that should have been. Well, what people don't know is we actually did a lot of the advanced engineering on that car in my group. Yeah, it had Corvette suspension, copy, you know, some of the components were actually the same. We package protected in the design that it would hold a V8. That that was another Lutz deal, right? And and I was there when we were designing and we were getting direction and all these things for these from, you know, different parts of the corporation and, and everything that this is what we want and that's what we want and this is what we want. And I was there the day that he said, did a big review with him and he said, that's that's beautiful. He says, I, I can't believe you can sell that car for, for $20,000. And they said, well, well, no, you could never sell that car for $20,000 and make a profit. I don't understand. He yeah. says, well, that's the first line on the description of the car. So you give me a $20,000 car we can sell. Wow. <laughs> but they had it on a path to make it way too heavy and way too everything else, right? That was a great car. That was a lot of fun to build. That car ran, like I said, 1090s. It would pull 1.05G lateral on street tires. It would stop from uh, 60 miles an hour in 95 feet. You know, those cars won a number of championships, too, in, in SCCA road racing. So those, those yellow cars, I can't remember what the code was for those cars, but 
the reason why so many people love GM is all this overhead that you build into the car for hot riding. It just seems like, you know, there's always a pathway for doing cool things with the cars. Yeah, well, that's part of, you know, we are hot riders, right? There's a there's a big core group of extreme car enthusiasts inside basically most of the OEs. And when you get an opportunity, and I lived through that period of time in GM when we had the performance division, right? And we had the John Heinrichs and we had the Al Oppenheisers, right? Who was the chief engineer at Camaro. I worked direct for Al. And okay. so, I mean, we got to do all of those things, right? So we would put those features in and those opportunities. The other one you asked me, you know, the other one of the other ones at GM that, that I was really proud of, we did a, a crate motor shootout story and it was in Hot Rod. It's still the largest story that ever ran in the history of Hot Rod. And it was wow. 20 pages. And I put the GM Performance Parts logo on the cover of Hot Rod Magazine. Now, that does not happen. Right. I don't know that it ever happened before. And I did it again with the Rampage. It has the Arrington Performance logo on the windshield of it. So I got to do that twice. I don't know if I snuck it by or how I got it, but, you know, really good <laughs> right. people. And so, but that car was, was a 69 Chevelle. I bought that out of a barn in Davison, Michigan. It was an original 396 SS car. It was kind of rough, but we fitted it so that it would hold eight different engines. I rented the track. I rented 131. In four days, we started with an LS7. We did seven engine swaps, six torque converters, four rear axles, and over 120 quarter mile runs with seven completely different packages in four days. We went as fast as 1070. We went 1079 with a bone stock LS7 in a Chevelle. That is amazing. That's very yeah, cool. We, we know what it takes to try to run that kind of a number, and that's that's pretty phenomenal. The car works good. The factory suspension's good. But the uh, the weight of that car, that yeah. is not a lightweight car. Yeah. It, but yeah. now the C8Z06 has come out. And one of the things in particular is we did think that you'd have a double overhead cam V8. It was probably going to be 5.5 liters because of Le Mans. But then on top of that, you know, we looked at the trends of, you know, the bore and stroke necessary to hit 5.5 liters. And I figured, you know, with the trends being what they are and toward emissions and everything, it's going to probably be a smaller bore and a larger stroke, you know, to hit this 5.5. And the bore spacing is probably going to shrink because of the packaging in the car. And then lo and behold, they came out with the fact that it has a 4.4 inch bore spacing. And I know exactly what you can do with a 4.4 inch bore spacing in terms of displacement. I'm just blown away that they made that decision to go with that huge bore and that little 80 millimeter stroke to create this thing that I know has so much more potential left in it. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Well, and the only thing, the, the thing that really allows you to do a, a four, the bigger bore with this, with the uh, a shorter stroke is, is direct injection. Without direct injection, you can't control the flame travel. So they actually create a bowl in the piston and spray the fuel into the bowl. And if properly timed and controlled, the fuel will burn before it hits the piston. So the concentration of energy is in that small cup. So that lets you reduce emissions and increase the power. All kinds of other technical stuff, right? One of the things I want to talk about, I, I know we could probably go all afternoon, but there are two things in particular. You did a stint over at Lingenfelter during a very important time. Can you tell us a little bit about your stint there, what you set to do going into it, and then how you feel like things were at the time where you kind of retired from that company? Yeah, so um, I had met Ken Lingenfelter, right? Ken, when John 
passed, the company Lingenfelter transitioned to a gentleman who was the uh, like operations manager of the company. He bought it from John's wife and daughter. And, you know, nice guy, but he didn't have the right skill set, didn't have the financial means and those kinds of things. So Ken Lingenfelter, which is John's cousin, John's brother called Ken and said, hey, you're a car guy. You should look at my brother's company. So Ken uh, ended up buying the company. Uh, I contracted with him through Diversified Creations to build a truck that would debut at SEMA in 2010. And it was a 55 Chevy. It was the first E-Rod 5.3. 55 Chevy pickup, complete aftermarket body. So it was a ground up new build. And uh, I used the Trailblazer SS chassis and did a lot of that stuff, right? So a lot of things that nobody had ever done and, and nobody really thought about. But we built that truck and delivered it to SEMA in 10 weeks, a full ground up. So that kind of cemented with Ken, you know, that maybe I did know what I was doing. And we did that at Diversified Creations, right? Completely independent of GM. So um, actually at SEMA that year, I decided I was going to retire from GM. The politics and, and a lot of those things, I frankly just didn't need. So I retired from GM on October 31st, or no, January 31st, sorry, of 2011. And I went to work for Ken on February 1st. And uh, I was a vice president at Lingenfelter. Uh, we created a lot of projects. That was the time frame when the direct injected engine became available from GM, the, the LT series. We have access at Lingenfelter, they had access, just like we at Arrington have access to the Chrysler systems, parts and all that stuff. So GM loaded, direct injected. I had made a couple calls and I ordered one of the first pickup trucks that I could get. And then when these engines popped up into inventory, we bought two 5.3 liter direct injected engines. GM didn't really want to sell them. They didn't expect anybody to find them. And, and we did. And so we bought two of them. So within about two days of getting that engine, we had it in the dyno and actually had it running. So they understand how complicated that is to start the engine on the dyno because they have an immobilizer system in a theft deterrent inside the ECM. You have to transmit a CAN message to the ECM so that it will start. We parked the truck outside the dyno cell, tapped into the CAN wires, ran them into the dyno cell, hooked them to the ECM, and to start the engine on a dyno, you had to go out in the, in the parking lot and use the key on the truck to start the engine. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> because otherwise the engine wouldn't run. It didn't get this communication link, so it, the ECM would not allow it to start. But, you know, I had, we had really great people at Lingenfelter. They had their chief engineer, a guy named Graham Beham, and, and, and some of the others that worked there were just super smart. So together we all figured that out, and we got the engine to run. And, and when you're doing development, what you did before doesn't always work today. So as an example, we took a set of LT-based cylinder heads and ported them with the same technology that we used on LS heads and bolted them back on the engine to test them, right? They <laughs> lost 40 horsepower. Right. So yep. then we had to go back and figure out how to invent a new port program and do all of those things. Lingenfelter sure. is a great company for that. Like I say, they have really talented people and Ken supports the company and gave us the, the where and all to go do what we had to do to develop that technology, right? Uh, it was a it was a you know a good time. I mean, one of the last things I created there was the uh, the Chevy Reaper pickup truck, right? Yeah. Competitor to the Ford Raptor. Yep. I mean, you know, supercharged LT engines, long travel off road suspension. Mm -hmm. I'm I have a huge passion for off road. 
I do a lot of that. Got a little 930 horse supercharged LSG. I mean, <laughs> I, I love that stuff, right? right so, right. Uh, so we created that. And a quick story, kind of fun, right? I, I have a lot of partners like Al. When I met him, a lot of friends in the industry. Brett Vocal, who owned Ride Tech, good friend, <laughs> called Brett and I said, "Hey, I want to do this program." I said, and I need your help to do it because you have a Fox relationship. I want to use their product. I need to do development. Brett came back and he, and he said, uh, look, you're a friend too. He said, so I don't know anything about off-road, but I'm going to do this project because you asked me to. He said, but here's the deal. At the end of the first year, if you've bought five suspension systems or less, you're buying the steak dinner. If you <laughs> bought five suspension systems or more, I'm buying the steak dinner. That's a deal, right? And only friends can make a deal like that. So we did all the work. We did the, you know, I shared engineering design data that we created. They did some design data. We invented control arms and shocks and everything else. We went to California. Fox came out. We set up a track in the desert in a place called Plaster City. We built a seven-mile loop. And, and we went out and we designed and developed and tuned a suspension system under this truck. We got it all done. We partnered with a company called MCM Vehicles who had access to brand new GM trucks and had a distribution network. So uh, I went to the NADA show in New Orleans with them. We debuted that truck, launched it. I called Brett the next day and I said, okay, I said, I'm having a PO processed. Here's our first order. And he said, all right. He said, are you buying or am I buying? I said, the, the, the PO is for 150 suspension systems. Wow. <laughs> So, but we sold 550 trucks in a year. That's amazing. You know? So did you get a hundred times the number of steak dinners out of Brett? Or, you know, Just one, but it was a really good place. Now, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Brett's a great guy, Mike. Uh, developed a great company over the years. And, and you're right. The friendships in our industry and the relationships you develop over the years are, are just so important. You know, we, we appreciate the relationship with you, Mike, and we appreciate you spending time with us today. Any other tidbits, any hashtags you want to throw out there, anything <laughs> like that? Any any Hemi love? Yeah, well, the you know, the Hemi the Hemi world is is different than ELS world. And uh frankly, I've got a Camaro, my wife has an 11 Camaro with a supercharged LS and trick suspension and all the good stuff, right? Forge lines, Continental tires, everything on it. I have a Challenger. I have a 19 Challenger that I that I play with. It has a 392 with our forged drop-in piston and rod. Right now, I have one of our experimental kind of camshafts in it, and then I have a Vortec V7 on it. Right now, I have it set at 12.4 pounds of boost. It makes 845 horsepower at the crank, runs 1060s on just a street drag radial, foot braking it. I mean, the, the, the technology, it is so much faster and so much more fun to drive than my Camaro, I hate to say, but it, it's just... I mean, when you got a car that you only do that amount of work in it and you can stand in the throttle at 55 miles an hour and haze the tires, that's just fun. I don't care who you are. And, uh, you know, look for a lot more coming from us in the Hemi world. We have a bunch of new products and uh, a bunch of things that we're waiting to release. We've been updating our website continually, shophemi.com. You know, I'll give you, Al, a little tidbit for the future. Al and I, when I was at Lingenfelter, we worked out a program where you could buy uh, Lingenfelter parts through Summit, and Al and I have that same path going forward with Arrington. So it's awesome, Mike. And Mike, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Have a great weekend. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to have me on. 
This has been the On All Cylinders podcast. Powered by Summit Racing. Check out new episodes coming soon at onallcylinders.com. Onallcylinders.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.